Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Real quick before we get, jump into today's show, I'm going to take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors that help make the show possible, and then we'll jump back in. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise today by visiting VetCheckForPets.com, which again is VetCheckForPets.com. Hi, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Austin Hare, who's a managing partner at Leaders Real Estate and is the host of the commercial Real Estate Secrets Podcast, which yours truly has been on the show. So if you want to hear a conversation, go over there and check that one out. And the big thing with the podcast is it's all about helping healthcare practitioners scale, which would obviously include you all in veterinary medicine. Austin lives in Orlando, Florida with his family and works nationally. So Leaders does work all over the country, not just in the kind of Orlando area. And he has interestingly been on American Ninja Warrior and is a retired professional wakeboarder. So there's some interesting tangents to get into, but Austin, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, my pleasure. Looking forward to it. So let's start with the most difficult question you'll get, which is going to be on American Ninja Warrior, <laughs> the hardest aspect of the competition. Man, you mentioned wakeboarding. Wakeboarding definitely helped me prepare for Ninja Warrior. It's kind of like with wakeboarding, you're on the water, which is very volatile and like the conditions can just vary so drastically. So honestly, coming into American Ninja Warrior, it was kind of nice like having something that's like less volatile like less changing and to know exactly how the obstacles are gonna the the obstacles are always new like you never get to test them at all so it's always your first time that's probably the most challenging part but uh, like on the flip side it's nice knowing like your obstacle is going to be the same as the next person's and the person's after that i mean barring if it rains or something which is unusual so really the hardest part is like trying to look at an obstacle trying to watch other people do it figuring it out in your head how you're going to accomplish this thing and then going out there and having to do it first try without ever having practice on it. Yep. And down in Indianapolis around the circle, they set up for American Ninja Warrior. And it, I bet it's been, had to be pre-2020. But I remember that was kind of a big deal. And a handful of people went down and watched it. But it's awesome. So makes sense. The ability to quickly react and change to things from a wakeboarding perspective would definitely help. Yeah, cool. it was uh, definitely an advantage. Did you finish all the way through? I did, yeah. I've been training for about a year and some change, which is not really like a lot of time, but I mean, we've been training pretty hard and yeah, I made it through, hit the buzzer in the city qualifiers and went to uh, city finals. So unfortunately I didn't make it past city finals to like Vegas or whatever, but I was very happy to complete a course, you know, my first year. Yeah, for sure. That's a huge accomplishment. All right, let's transition a little bit into your day job, which is with leaders. 
and tell us and talk to the listeners about what you all do and maybe also kind of what you don't do. I think that's helpful sometimes to kind of outline our discussion from here of like where you're coming from, what you guys offer, what you do for the clients and people you work with. Yeah. What we don't do is act as business brokers because we get that question a lot. So we're not here to like find existing businesses for sale and scope those or help you with the sale or the valuation of your business. But other than that, we try to be to solve every problem related to real estate for healthcare organizations that we possibly can. So we consider ourselves a third party real estate department without any of the overhead. So that means we will help you find a new location if you're going through DeNovo. We'll help you reload, and that's through an in depth competition analysis and doing demographic data. So a quick story about that is I was in the fitness space before commercial real estate, like after wakeboarding, before commercial real estate, I owned several gyms and I was growing those by DeNovo. And that's when I met my partner because he was helping me identify where I wanted to go. And so I had a gut feeling about what locations I wanted to go to, which ones I wanted to stay away from. And what happened was he went really deep with the analytical data, seven layers deep, put a scorecard by everything. And what we found was that the places that I felt good about all of a sudden didn't look so good on paper. The places that I didn't feel good about all of a sudden looked a lot better. And I was just really impressed with how he did that because he put a number by everything. We added it all up. We had clear data and it took away the emotion and made it all logical. So I was really, so after I told the gyms, he invited me to come work with him. So that's kind of like one of the main things, but of course, like not everybody's doing Dodobo. Most people are doing acquisition. So in that case, what we do, we use the same principles. If you buy a place, acquire a place, you need to relocate it. We'll help you do those exact same things with you know, street visibility, competition analysis, anchor tenants, synergistic users, then also leasebacks. So if, if say the uh, vet that you are acquiring, the doctor, the hospital, they own the real estate and they want to sell that. And you are either unable or unwilling to buy it because we all have different stages in our journey for how much capital we have access to. We can help you. We can partner, we can buy it and we can do a lease back to you. We'll also buy and develop for new locations, like for development for a, a DeNovo where nothing exists or buy an existing empty building. And we can do that for a lease back. So, and then lastly, would just be acting as a broker, of course, handling the negotiations. We always say like, it's great. We all want to help our buddy, stepbrother, our golfing buddy, whatever. Like, you know, oh yeah, this guy's a local real estate broker. Let me just use him. It's expensive to build out these places and it's really expensive to relocate. And if you pick the wrong location, you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot and creating a lot of headaches for yourself. So we always just say, hey, use an expert. It doesn't have to be us. But just use somebody who's an expert in the field. You can help your buddy some other way. But like get someone who's done at least 10 deals in your specific industry, like in this case, you know, in, in the vet industry. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will know what it means, but can you explain what de novo means? Yeah. So acquisition is obviously you buy a new location. I mean, so you buy an existing practice and you now acquire it, you own it. De novo would just mean, I think it, I think it's Latin for of nothing or, or from start. I don't know. Anyways, it's just like if you want to put a new location somewhere where there none exists and build it from scratch from the ground up. Perfect. So I know the question always gets brought up and I think I know what your initial answer will be, but I'm still going to ask it. And it's one of those hard questions, but the buy versus lease discussion and how does someone kind of think through that? How do you help that discussion go through and how do you kind of weigh factors to make the right decision? And the right decision is always going to be, well, it depends, but how do you think through that? Yeah. I like how you phrase that. How do you weigh those factors? Because like you said, it depends hundred percent. So we always think about it from the perspective of where is the best location for the business, right? You'd think as commercial real estate investors, we always advocate buying, but the thing is it just doesn't always make sense. So even a guy like Bill Gates has said he would feel comfortable if he had a year's worth of operating expenses in the business for Microsoft, right? So even Bill Gates, for a long time, the world's richest man, feels constrained by the amount of capital he has, right? So we all are constrained by the amount of capital that we have to an extent. So the question is, where is the best use of your capital? So if you find a location and you absolutely cannot lease that location. Like you have to buy it because like, let's just say you find two locations, right? You're doing a de novo. 
strategy, one location you can rent and one location you can buy. And they're both equal in terms of street visibility, signage, competition, good users, good anchor tenants, all that kind of stuff. If they're not both equal, pick the one that's going to be best for your business, right? Regardless of whether you can lease or buy. So always look at it through that lens. Now, let's assume they're equal, which hardly ever happens. Just assume that they are. Then you got to look at what am I going to be doing with my capital? So if you have a consolidation group and you're growing and you need that money to scale and buy other practices, what kind of ROI are you getting? I mean, probably if I had to guess 30, 40, 50, 100% ROI on the money that you're using to acquire new practices, I don't know. And then when you buy a commercial real estate, sometimes that requires up to 20% of the down payment. So is that money going to be, what kind of ROI are you going to get? It's just kind of like spreadsheet math. Like if I get typically real estate kind of returns nine, 12, maybe 15% over time, which is great. It's not bad at all, but is your business going to be better? Probably it's going to be a little bit better in your business. So a lot of times what we see is once groups get to a big enough size where they have plenty of cash, then that's when they kind of shift their strategy from focusing solely on the growth, like the acquisitions to also encompassing a real estate strategy too. So we can partner with people along the way who are not quite at the size where they have enough cash, they have enough liquidity to be able to own both. We can figure out different ways to structure that partnership where maybe some of the doctors and vets are co-investing in the real estate as well to create some stickiness. And so that's kind of the lens that we look at that through. What's the best for your business? How much capital do you have? And what's the best use of that capital? Talk a little about the co-invest piece. I was going to get to that later, but I think it's a good time since you brought it up. Help someone understand what that looks like and how that investment could be beneficial, even if maybe you're leasing your own space, but you can look at these other investments where it could be maybe more diversifying, right? If you don't own the building that your business is in, but I can co-invest in properties around. Is that kind of the idea and concept there? Yeah, yeah. So let's just say you're acquiring a practice that they're selling the real estate. We'll co-invest with the doctors or with the consolidation, like the different groups that we work with to allow them to take ownership of that building, right? So like what that means is instead of being like a hundred, because there's two components. There's the time and the money, right? Like even if you have the money, do you want to spend time managing that? Like you want to spend your mental bandwidth hiring people to manage it or managing it or taking phone calls and fixing things and stuff like that. And so that's kind of where we come in. Like we're obviously like the managing partners of that. And so when you collectively invest, the, like the take down the building and allow other people a certain slot, like a certain percentage, then now they have aligned incentives. And so one of the things that it does is, you know, I mentioned that it creates stickiness. Well, once you invest in a building, they own that regardless of whether or not they stay with you, you know, you can't really control that. But what it does is it incentivizes them to stay on long enough to invest in the next building, right? Like if you buy another practice that has real estate and you want to co-invest with it. So it's kind of like an exclusivity thing. Like, you know, it creates this kind of exclusive club where you have to be part of this group to get access to invest in this real estate that will probably have some pretty good returns as far as real estate goes compared to other things that you might see if you were not involved in this group. So let's say I'm a private practice owner. I'm leasing the building that I'm in now. I'm not sure if I want to buy. Could then they technically co-invest in other deals? Like, could they reach out and find a way if they wanted to get into commercial real estate? Because I hear that a lot, right? Especially, and we can go into the kind of the hard asset and why real estate might be a good investment in a little bit, but is that still something that's out there or is it more from like the consolidation groups where you see the co-investment or do you see individual doctors do it? So you're asking like, if we're buying the real estate for group A, and there's this other unrelated group B that they want to invest in the real estate side of it with group A. Yeah, for us, it's not a big deal at all. Like if somebody wants to invest, we'll work with them. Absolutely. In terms of the exclusivity that I'm talking about, it's more or less for the group owners or the CEOs and the founders of the consolidation group to offer that to the individual doctors. Because it's not like you can just Google this, right? Like 
it's, it's really word of mouth driven. Sure. Yep. And I think that's a lot of real estate to find and hunt for good deals and good value, especially in a, a world where real estate seems to be priced to perfection. It is very much still relational and fragmented and you have to have some of those connections in conversations. So yeah, on that point, you mentioned diversification earlier, which I would like to talk about a little bit because sure. a lot of times people think buying the real estate, especially if you're an individual practice, you think that buying the real estate is a diversification for your practice because it's like, well, I've got the business operation and I've got the physical asset, so I'm diversified. But people don't realize a lot of times is that the value of the building is strongly tied to the value of the business. And so A, if the business does much, much, much better, yeah, your building is going to be worth more with you as a tenant. But by the flip side, if it does worse, say you go out of business, how that building is worth significantly less. And so you're not really diversifying as much as you think you are by investing in your own real estate. And so that's another reason we encourage them to invest in like a group that has a lot of diversification over different industries, or at least different geographic areas and different types of debt consolidation groups. And so what's the best way to look for those kind of opportunities for co-investment? I mean, I'm feeling like I'm asking a barber for a haircut. Like obviously that's something you guys do, but is there a way that you could go like seek out those type of groups to find that investment? And then do they have to be uh, yeah. accredited investor? Like what kind of dollar amounts are typically just if you're yeah, I mean, able you know, to I, share kind of what that looks like? There are other places that offer co-investment. I'm not familiar with them or how exactly they will structure the deal. So I can only sure. speak to us, but yeah, for us, I'll leave our website in the show notes for anybody listening who wants to get in touch. But yeah, you don't have to be an accredited investor you know, in order to invest in us. We will do a limited partner slug, like we'll dedicate part of the equity to go out to people who are interested in co-investing. And you know, we'll have a minimum, right? Like a certain minimum, depending on the deal size. But other than that, yeah, it's essentially you invest the money. So our strategy typically is we're trying to do value add stuff. So like, let's just say we can buy a practice or you know, a piece of real estate and it has equity from the day we buy it because it's worth slightly more to the bank in the bank size than what we can buy it for. So with limited partner investors, our goal is to refinance that as soon as we can, get them 100% of their money back and they continue to make money on phantom equity, right? So your ROI obviously goes down. That's not true. Your cash flow will actually go down because you're refinancing, but your ROI goes up to an infinite amount because now you're getting a return on money that's no longer allocated, right? Like you've got that money back. So that's kind of our strategy is buy a building, do value add with a certain amount of cash, refinance so that everybody can get as close to the amount of their original capital back and then continue making money on that. And then you go do another deal. Obviously you can get your money back or we usually send your money back. But at that stage, it's like it worked out really well. I'm getting paid. I have hundred percent of my money back. So yeah, why would I not go temporarily allocate this capital to this group and then get it back and keep my ROI, right? Like do that again, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. It's kind of like an infinite formula. Sure. So one thing that I will often ask real estate investors, and this is not an anti-real estate thing, right? But you go back to late 70s, early 80s, interest rates super high, and they've fallen for 40 years. That has bode well for the refinance pool and see the equity growth of or just the asset value growth of those buildings. So inflation is going to drive up that value. Interest rates go down. I refinance. It's a really great formula. That's why there's a lot of wealth that's been created in real estate. Do you view that changing if, and this is a huge if, if interest rates ever would start to move back up, does that change some of the formula? Because a lot of the things and the successes and the way that these businesses have been built in the past have been on the idea that asset price goes up, interest rates come down or stay pretty flat. But what if they start to rise again? Does that change the formula? Does that start to change the way that you analyze things. I know that's a very 
tough question that probably is multi-layered, but yeah, no, it is a good question, right? Yeah. Because a rising tide lifts all boats and yeah, it's been anybody who's been in real estate just in the past, even 10 years looks super smart. <laughs> all you did was buy and hold. But so there is one caveat though, and that's the value add caveat. So what I mean by that is just is simply what can you do to increase the value of the real estate while you own it? And sometimes it's as easy as extending the term of the lease, right? Or something like that. So we work with the tenants, like we're very tenant driven, but we work with them to figure out what's going to be the best terms for them to help them grow and scale. But also how can we add value to this real estate through the way that we structure the lease? And so what's happening is the building, you buy it for a certain amount, you restructure the lease. Now it's worth more. So when we're refinancing, we're doing that relatively quickly after we acquire it. Even when you purchase uh, for development, like, you know, a development can take six, nine at the most 12 months, but it's unlikely that you're going to see a significant increase in interest rates in a nine month period, yet alone a couple month period. So usually when you're looking at a deal, you're factoring in the current interest rate right now. And by the time you go to refinance it, the interest rates, even though we are in a rising interest rate environment right now, albeit very, very slowly, they're usually not happening fast enough to really affect the semant- the structure of the deal or, or the ROIs. And so, yeah, we're obviously bullish right now. If interest rates were to change, we would have to evaluate that. You and I talk about this on my podcast, but it's like so much debt right now. The U.S. has so, so, so much debt. I just don't see how they can afford to increase that interest rate very much. I mean, they're barely making the payments as it is, right? And the U.S. cannot default on its debt. So my belief is like it'll be hard for them to raise the interest rate significantly to what we saw earlier for that reason. And if they do, I mean, that's another reason why we want to buy and refinance really quickly is because we want to lock in those low interest rates for as long of a period as we can. And that way, well, at least our payments will be set, right? So I don't know. That's kind of like a long-winded answer to your no, question. No, it's perfect. And I say, bingo, the point that you made, and I see this like diverging path of macro discussion that I'm not going to take us down, even though like, that's <laughs> what I say once we did a lot of about. That. The idea that the federal government is in a between a rock and a hard place. Like you raise interest rates too much, a lot of things break. And so it's structurally a point where we can't really raise rates. And so I agree with you, totally agree with that sediment and kind of where the market will likely be is interest rates are going to be lower for longer. And so it makes this really attractive and the same way again for listeners. And that's why I'm such an advocate of business ownership because I can go borrow for a long period of time to invest in a business that has a really good rate of return. Like both those things make a ton of sense. So no, I appreciate that. And yeah, kind of switch gears a little bit, but the idea of, do I put it in a retail strip? Do I want a freestanding building? Is there one that's better than the other? And then location selection. You talked a little bit about demographics earlier, but Let's kind of unpack that. And I think you did a good job of explaining, like, if things are the same, like, how is it going to make the business better? But any thoughts on freestanding retail strip, any changes that you've seen in dynamics? There's pros and cons. Again, it depends. So the benefits of going to a retail strip is that you get the benefit of those neighbor tenants that are coming by. And really, I mean, we have a saying, drive to or drive through. And it's like, do you want to drive yeah, sure. If you drive through, like you're looking past it every time you go by. But if you're stopping, you're driving to it, like using a grocery store as an example, the average family visits a grocery store 2.3 times per week, right? So you're stopped, you're getting out of your car, you're taking it in. It's much slower than just like whizzing by it. Maybe you're on your phone or not paying attention. So having a drive to where you have those good anchor tenants that walk by traffic is always great. But there's benefits of having your own freestanding building too, because if you look at it from a 
just a geographic standpoint, right? Of like a physical building with three walls that you can you put signage on. So when you're driving by, like you can, from whatever direction, you can physically see the signage of it. And maybe people like that easy access, easy in, easy out. So the pros and cons of both. Now, in terms of developing, yeah, the freestanding triple net single tenant leases are preferred for most investors just because it gets complicated. Now, in our case, I think that's, you asked earlier, what do we do? I just kind of didn't even think about it, but that's one thing that I haven't seen anybody else doing is like, we'll take down a 10,000 square foot, multi three, four unit building with the, that consolidator group as one of those tenants, just on speculation, essentially hoping that either we can rent it out or developing a strategy to make sure that we're leasing out the other areas. But like, if we have a strong tenant that's willing to take down a third to half of the building, we'll take down the other part on spec and work kind of work together collectively to get that done. Because sometimes what happens is like you got these groups, they will only work with, they'll only buy work, do the real estate for those single freestanding buildings. And that just really limits your options. I mean, they're great. They can absolutely work really well for the benefits like we just mentioned, but it really can limit what you're able to do. And so our goal is just to kind of like be able to creatively go through and solve any problem that comes up within reason. So yeah, if it ends up being like, we want to buy one of these buildings, like we can do that. And it is a little bit more complicated. So that's the trade-off, right? Of course, on the upside, yeah, now you've got more control, you own it, and you've got the benefit of foot traffic of the neighbor tenants. Any themes, any kind of trends that you've seen that you feel like are noteworthy within veterinary medicine that you've kind of noticed that maybe weren't there before, or just in general, if you had to project out in the future, these are kind of consistent things that you think will be happening in that space? Yeah. So in general, there is a really big reluctance to pay higher rents. And I get it because like I said, I used to own some businesses. We encourage people to shift their viewpoint, to view rent as a factor of marketing. And that's something that we're seeing a lot. We're do a lot in the dental space, in the DSO space. And so as a little brief history lesson, like you had the mom and pop fast food chains that popped up in the fifties and sixties. And what happened is the people who took their time doing the research, taking prominent retail corners on Main and Main started to do really, really well. And you had this huge consolidation in the fast food industry. And the rest is history. I mean, like now you can see them everywhere. Some strategies are just simply follow where the prominent fast food chains go. After that, you kind of started seeing the pharmacies like Eckerd's and CBS and all this. They started doing that in the 80s and 90s, followed by the banks in the 2000s. You started them taking the prominent retail corners and doing really, really well, like going for that high visibility, high traffic count. And then you saw in the dental, like in the teens, 2000 teens started really focusing on those prominent retail places. Before that, especially in healthcare and dental and, and urgent care and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you just had this little office that was offset, didn't have good visibility. It didn't have good neighbor tenants. And it was all basically based on word of mouth or whatever advertising you want to do. And so it's like, when you look at an office building that's for rent for $3,000 a month, and then the next closest thing is a retail for $10,000 a month, that can be intimidating because you're tripling your rent. You know what I mean? You're looking at that through that scope of just like, what is my rent? But when you take a step back and you realize, okay, rent is a factor of my overall expenses is only a percentage. It's not that much. We had that exact situation. So a guy was paying $3,000 a month in rent, wasn't doing very good. We helped relocate him half a mile away to a much better plaza, paid $10,000, literally tripled his rent. However, his top line revenue went from 50 grand a month to a hundred grand a month. And so he literally doubled. So it's like, you think he's worried about that extra seven grand and expenses? No, it was a great investment for him. So just to summarize what you asked, like the trends that we're seeing is that switch, that viewpoint from like being recessed, being in like these residential or these office areas to getting more prominent, to getting better viewing, to get more street visibility, to become, we call it stacking the deck in your favor and success leaves clues, right? And so you see these groups doing this that are very successful and they're growing like crazy. And so we're just following their trends and trying to help stack the deck in your favor. Got it. What's a real estate topic? And this is 
free for anything, whether you want to talk about single family homes, commercial real estate, anything. We can go any direction that we haven't touched on yet that you think is important or interesting to share. There's a lot of really unexpected things that happened from COVID. So I can kind of explain it through the lens of that. So during COVID, everybody thought, oh, commercial real estate's done. It's dead. It's going to die. And a couple unexpected things happened. Number one is when you think commercial real estate, you think retail and you think office. And so people just automatically assumed that all the retail is going to die because now you're doing e-commerce and you're shifting it directly to the consumer. But what they don't realize, myself included at the time, was that you're actually increasing the square footage requirement by going directly to the consumer because you have more supply chains now. So that's why you're seeing all this huge demand for space and warehousing and industrials is because people like Amazon and the other e-commerce fulfillment centers, FedEx, all those guys, they have to go through multiple supply chain steps, which physically require building because now guess what? That retail center actually kind of served as a distribution center of sorts because all the customers went there. But now when it's going directly to your house, like you have more places that it has to stop there to go directly to your door. So that increased the demand for that industrial and that warehouse space by a lot. I mean, a lot, because you never had to worry about those high prominent retail corners. And then what happened at the same time was, although good retail, A-grade retail still remained good, the people that were in like the lower, you know, you have A, B, C, D, and E-grade retail as it gets less and less desirable, those D and C-grade retails, those places couldn't necessarily afford the rent. And you saw them going out of business. And so what happened was this C and D grade retail actually became more affordable than industrial warehousing. So Amazon in Orlando, in one case, bought a Sears that had gone out of business, which is this giant mall in this retail center, because it was more affordable to buy that Mm. mall and repurpose it than it was to go look for industrial space. And so you got that, the demand for increased space, you combine that with the fact that people want more space for their housing. So people want because of coronavirus, they don't want to be crowded. They don't want to be in. A lot of people moved out of the cities and the offices or they bought a bigger house. They had more space. They're working from home. Maybe they didn't care about the virus at all. Maybe they just needed an office, right? And they needed more room for their kids. Maybe they were worried about virus and forever they want to have to not deal with people. Either way, in a city, you only have a certain amount of real estate. And if residential starts taking up more of the pie, well, that's less of the pie for the commercial. So all these things are going to drive prices up. Not to mention the fact that you know we did print a lot of money People have excess cash. They want to put it in an asset somewhere that's going to be resilient. So that drove a lot of investment to real estate. And so the only really negative working against it is just the interest rates. And as those go up, are those going to be strong enough to counterbalance, to counteract those things? Personally, I think the real estate fundamentals are very, very strong. I mean, the the people are investing a lot in them. They put a lot of their own cash in them. They built a lot of equity in them. If we see any sort of correction or reset, my, again, could be totally wrong, but I have very high conviction that it's not going to be real estate related at all because it happened in 2008. We went through it. We saw what happened. We corrected everything. Like there's no ninja loans. There's no income, no job, no assets. Like those don't happen. It's very, very hard to get a loan. We bought an investment, personal investment property Friday. And so the hoops that you have to jump through is crazy. And that being said, like it always comes from left field, right? Like we have an event, we have a crisis, we have a recession and we learn from it, but our memories are short and it only really happens within this lifetime. So it's like, I believe that anything that happens, like any sort of recession related things that happen during our lifetime, we'll remember it's when those people that physically went through it and lived through it start to die off that we start to repeat some of those mistakes again. So I don't think that we're going to have another real estate driven reset at all. If anything does happen, that's going to cause the prices to go down. It's going to be very macroeconomic related from someplace that we're not looking and then that hasn't happened in our lifetimes. Yeah. Well, I think the idea of inflation playing a bigger, bigger role, a lot of people like in my industry, right back late seventies, early eighties, they no longer are in positions of authority anymore. They've been replaced. So no one's really dealt with really high inflation. And I saw, actually, I think today it was just breached the 7% mark for CPI inflation. Oh, really? And, that happened? Yeah. Cause yeah. we were talking about that earlier. It's yeah. like, we, I so like it went, 
fives and is underestimated. Fours, fives, high sixes, and then it was over seven today. So it's interesting. And again, I've done a specific episode on this podcast around inflation and how to think about it. But if I can borrow money that is a fixed rate that I know for sure my payment monthly, and I can have a business that is going to grow and a asset that's a hard asset that will continue to appreciate value really starts to become really, really attractive. Now, what that does is it bids up the prices because like any rational actor in that economy is going to say, ooh, same thing, like real estate's good, stock market, good, bond market, maybe not, but there's going to be kind of a push to find places to put capital to say, how can I protect my purchasing power? And that to me is really interesting where in a world of really low interest rates, real estate still offers really attractive yields for investors and for boomers as they age out and start to think about how can I get income back? It's not going to be from bonds. Bonds have so little yield left. Real estate is becoming, I think, more and more of a player there. So again, I think the macro backdrop for real estate is interesting and will become and play a bigger, bigger role. So I agree. Yeah, no, I agree that it's got me very bullish on real estate for sure. I mean, when there's money creation and money printing, which I'm so confused about whether it's the Fed or Congress or or both or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, like we're increasing the money supply, right? That's a fact. And so how can that not cause inflation, right? How can that not drive up the value of assets? So really who's getting punished in these situations are the people, the savers, the guys who are diligent. And of course the wage earners too, who don't have enough to get out of the rat race, because if you create money, even if it goes to wage earners first, it's eventually, it's increasing the money supply, which will always eventually drive up the prices of assets, which creates more disparity between haves and the have nots. So I used to get really upset about that. I felt, and not that I like it, but it's like, there's a saying, don't fight the Fed. And it's like, okay, well, I can cry about it or I can do something about it. And I have a responsibility to do what's best for me and my family, which is to buy assets. And so when you think about through that lens of like, okay, I'm going to buy assets. And I'm talking a long period of time because like we have stock market fluctuates, the real estate market fluctuates a lot. But in general, if you look back over 30 years, real estate has done really, really well. The market has done really, really well. There has never been a point in time that I could find where you had a 20-year period where the market didn't do exceptionally well if you invested your money and kept it in there for 20 years, even if you invested on the worst day. In some of those things, like I think the Great Depression took exactly 20 years before we got out of it. But like any other time, you would have seen significant gains if you invested on the absolute worst day and waited 20 years. And so if we believe that to be true, then taking on debt at a cheap interest rates right now, like when debt is less than inflation, it just seems like a no brainer. Now, you can get yourself in trouble by being over leveraged where if you don't have much equity in the building and if you don't have good cash flow, then that's not a good recipe. Right. But like as long as the numbers check out, like as long as you're buying a building that either you're signing a long-term lease or I do a lot of Airbnbs where the cash flow is more than the debt service by a good amount. Like you have some buffer there and then you believe that we're going to be in an inflationary environment and you're locking in that debt over 30 years. I mean, that money that you lock, that payment is going to feel less and less painful every year, right? Like 6% inflation last year. That means if you payment was $1,000 a month, it's going to feel like 940 bucks. You know what I mean? Like it's going to have less steam, right? It's going to have less impact on your overall life. And like the longer time goes on, the less that payment hurts you. So I'm trying to lock in debt on appreciating assets at good interest rates as much as I possibly can, as long as the underlying fundamentals stay true. Like you have some equity in the building and you're very confident that you can service the debt flow. If you can do those things, like, and you have a long time horizon, then there's no reason not to invest in these categories. Yep. And the whole idea that debt is evil, kind of going the Dave Ramsey approach. And we talked a little bit about this, like Dave is helpful for people that feel like the world is out of control. They can't be responsible with debt. Debt can be a great tool when used appropriately. Like you're talking about using leverage, using debt. And everyone thinks leverage sounds like a terrible thing, but it's like, well, how'd you buy your home? 
oh, wait, you borrowed for it. You're using leverage to buy your house. Yeah, it's the same idea. Like as long as you don't do something that's foolish and like, hey, I'm going to try to upgrade the house to where I can't afford it anymore. <laughs> right. But you or can go on vacation or you, buy yeah, shopping. It, yeah, you it, don't it, want to take debt for those things. It's all, I think the idea of cash flow and understand, okay, where's the income sources into the household and how steady are those? And again, for those working within veterinary medicine, veterinary medicine is super resilient to recessions and economic shocks and all these other things. So there is a really good spot and demand for this like super cycle within veterinary medicine as far as people, you know, COVID, a lot of adoptions, a lot of pets that were brought home and it's like, there's a boom there. Mm-hmm. And that I just really, really view this as an interesting time for younger veterinarians, veterinarians mid-career, like to utilize not only the benefit of where they're at from their profession, but also, yeah, cheap interest rates. And I think real estate can play a really interesting part there where you have the business value, but then you can have the real estate value as well. That's kind of a dual piece. Well, where everybody got in trouble in 2008 was you weren't relying on the basic fundamentals and the cash flow. You're essentially playing the bigger fool, as they call it in the investing world, which is where you're buying the real estate. You're trying to buy as much as you can, as fast as you can, because it's going up every day and you have FOMO. And so you're relying on it being more than you paid for it in the next month or six months or year, regardless of if you can afford the payment or not. So that's really where you start to get in trouble. And we just don't see that happening. Now, like I said, something could come out of left field, like the inflation rate could cause a huge job loss, which sacks the whole entire economy. And sometimes you look at all the different layers that the economy is built on, and it feels like we're on the Titanic going across the Baltic Sea with a tray of champagne glasses that we're trying to balance to keep from falling off, right? It just feels like so, so, so fragile. But that's why we buy Bitcoin, right? <laughs> just in case that, that does happen. <laughs> but I'm not here to like predict the end of the world because people who bet against the market are historically wrong. I mean, it's every now and then it works out. So long term, I'm bullish. I realize there are some risks involved, but I think over time we found a way and we've continued to find a way. So I'm banking, you know, most of my money, most of my time is spent banking on the fact that things are going to get better over time, not worse. Yep. And the idea of you save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist is so true where like it doesn't usually pay to be super bearish or, you know, thinking everything is a house of cards and stuff fall apart. Even if you believe that you still have to kind of remove. And I think you made a comment earlier about your partner when you own the gyms. It's like using the scoring card to remove the emotion from it. I think that's a huge piece. Even if you believe something, sometimes we can say all day to a red in the face, the US stock market's overvalued. It's been overvalued for a while. And there's still been really good returns. So it's like, you still have to play the game and understand, okay, when is this money needed? It's similar with other asset classes, because if you wait and you're like, well, I'm just going to wait. Well, then that moment of opportunity comes, you see the sell-off, you see the thing. Now you're fearful. Now you're like, oh, this is the big one. It's never going to recover. And then it recovers and does the exact same thing. And you're still waiting. So there's never the perfect time to do it. And right now trying to hold cash and wait for that, it's the melting ice cube. Anyone that's listened to this podcast has heard me talk about the melting ice cube of just holding cash because your purchasing power is eroding. And so you got to find the fine line and understand kind of your personal situation. But no, I think there's a lot of truth to what you just shared. As we kind of wrap up, I want you to A, talk a little bit about the podcast. What is it you talk about? Who do you talk to? And then how to connect with you? Because I think the co-investment thing is interesting. I'm sure that there might be some people that would want to reach out. And then also just talk to how you work again with kind of the private practice owners. That's a lot of the folks that listen to this podcast and then how to reach out, how to connect and hear from you guys. Yeah. Look, if you have any bottlenecks at all in real estate as a vet consolidation group, reach out to us and we will absolutely do our best to help you solve it. I mean, we get paid from the seller, so it doesn't cost anything. A lot of times people think, oh, well, I'll just save money. I'll do it myself. But let's just say you're looking to buy or lease a building and you want to start negotiating yourself. The seller has already allocated 6% to go 
to the broker. And so if you don't use a broker on your end, then 6%, entire 6% is going to go to his broker, right? So just find someone who's going to be an expert who's done a lot of deals, even if it's not us. Obviously, we'd love to take a look and help you guys. But that's just my advice for that. Of course, just to recap, we can buy and do a lease back if you're a vet consolidation group. And if your credit's decent, right, we can buy and do a lease back and we can co invest with you on that. And then our podcast, at the very beginning, when we started this back in 2020, the uh, lease negotiation, we have a whole series on that. We have a series on determining your cap rate. Should I buy or should I lease? Just like we talked about, it goes into a little bit more depth and detail. We're now bringing on over the last year and a half, I guess last year, we've really started to bring on influencers and CEOs and founders of companies in healthcare spaces that can talk about what it is that they do really well. So we try and talk about like the entrepreneurial journey. It's a little bit like how I built this with Guy Raz and Masters of Scale with Reed Hoffman. He's the LinkedIn founder. And or is it Reed, Reed Hastings? I always get those mixed up. One is Netflix, one's LinkedIn. Hastings is Netflix. Okay, yeah, so Reed Hoffman. We try and have him tell her a story. And I feel like success leaves clues. And so a lot of times it's very inspirational to see what they do. And then you can see something that they've done really well and hopefully mimic that in your life or your business. So that's kind of like the idea of the podcast now. It's called Commercial Real Estate Secrets, even though our theme is helping healthcare scale because we're real estate guys. And then if you want to get in touch, my email is ahair, which is my first letter, my first name, Austin, and then hair, like hair on your head. So ahair at leadersre.com because we're leaders real estate. So the RE is in real estate. And then of course, the website is just www.leadersre.com as well. And you can look at our projects, you can look at what we've been doing, and then love to answer any questions. Perfect. And like you mentioned earlier, as a podcaster, like it'll be in the show notes and there'll be the information there. So you guys will have it. That way you can reach out with questions. And I know Austin would be happy to, to run through and share ideas and thoughts, even if it's like, hey, this isn't going to be necessarily something we do and go from there. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And that was a, such a quick conversation. But then I look at the time and like, wow, we spent a little bit of time chatting through. So thank you. I, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate I have a tendency it. to talk really fast. So I apologize. I hope people can understand me. And I they don't have to I listen on it. one and a half or 1.2 speed. Yeah. I mean, that's good with me. It's like slower it. and you got to like speed up yeah. when Isaiah talks. And slow down when Austin talks. <laughs> yeah, All I right. should. I will. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.